So Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes any of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Uh, we're in Matthew 18 this morning. Please have it on your lap. Um, it will appear on the screen periodically, but I'd love for you to have it on your lap. It's been quite a week. It's been quite a week. If you read a newspaper or look at the internet or turn on the TV news occasionally, you may have seen some of these images on your screens. There's division on every turn. It's division on how people voted on the European Union. Should we be in? Should we be out? There's been a lot of damage done in central London, even yesterday. There's been division on the, uh, the internet through uh, people's opinions on transgender and sexuality and what it means to be a woman. There's been a lot of division and heartache around the world about the importance of life, human life. What is a life worth? And uh, seeking to readdress the, the denigration of people with different colored skin, black people in centuries past. And so statues are being toppled and thrown into water. Statues are being boarded up and protected from uh, people that would do them harm. History is fluid and can be uh, erased and refashioned and reshaped to modern convictions. It's called chronological arrogance for one thing. And maybe you felt like uh, the moment you go up to your loft and you pull out an old woolen jumper, the moths have got into it and it's fraying. Society feels like that. It feels like an old wooden jumper, but where that image is something you can laugh about, something you can have a memory about and see holes in a woolen jumper, this is altogether more serious. This is loss of life. This is characters being assassinated. This is a confrontation on an aggressive, aggressive scale we've not seen for a long time, perhaps since the poll tax riots in the mid-80s. Central London is a war zone. Peaceful protests in one part of the country, aggression in another part of the country. And at this point, you, you see society, like that frayed jumper, being pulled apart. Social cohesion is a, is a thing, perhaps, that we're looking at afresh. Is society falling apart? Where's the foundation? Where's the social mores that we adhere to and hold to? 
society has a structure to it all all societies do there's there's people at the top and the people a bit below and people right at the very bottom the people at the top have money and influence and a voice the people who are in the middle have a little bit less and the people who are poor and lowly and the people who are marginalized they have no voice and no one listens to their cries one of the problems that every society around the world has is the issue of social cohesion what's the glue that we center around what's the uh, convictions that we hold in, as a commonality it's an important question that we uh, will be readdressing and thinking through in the weeks and months to come i hope what are our common values what are our common beliefs what are our common convictions in this passage matthew 18 there's a question in verse one that Jesus is asked. It's not asked from a, an esoteric or an intellectual point of view. It's a, it's a question that's burning in the heart of the disciples. Jesus, verse one, Matthew 18. Jesus, who's at the top of society in your kingdom? Who's the greatest? And where do we fit in? It's there in, in Matthew 18. This issue of greatness, what it is, it's the first thing I want us to think about from, from Matthew chapter 18. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, what is true greatness anyways? That question is answered in the first five verses of Matthew 18. What, what is greatness? And, and then the opposite or the, the, the friend of that is found in verses 6 to 11. If Jesus answers what true greatness is, then what does it look like? That's in the following sentences, sentences 6 to 11. What is greatness? Verses 1 to 5. And what does it look like? Verses 6 to 11, it's the outworking of Jesus' kingdom project. It's the outworking and the sign, the foundation of Jesus' new society. It's called the kingdom of God in the Gospels, or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And that's what I wanted to look at this morning. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? That's the first point. I've said Jesus gets asked this question, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's the greatest in your kingdom? Where do we fit? Can we sit to the right and to the left of you in your kingdom? Who's the greatest? What makes someone great anyway? This, uh, this kingdom project that Jesus has been describing throughout the Gospels is absolutely everywhere. It's there in chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus starts to speak. The first thing he speaks about is the kingdom of heaven. He says, I've come in to bring a new society, a new social order. And then he describes his manifesto in Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7. I'm about the kingdom of heaven and this is what it looks like. But the whole gospel of Matthew is structured around chapter 13. It's at the very center of the gospel structurally. And in seven parables, Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like. These are the people who will be in it. These are the values that is... Uh, that it will include and it will be signified and it will be seen by the seven parables of the kingdom of heaven. It's in Matthew 13. You might like to look it up later. Every kingdom has a structure to it. Every society has a hierarchy in it. And the disciples are saying, verse one, hey, Jesus, where do we fit in? Where's our seats? Are we at the bottom? We want to be at the top. It's not just a New Testament concept, this idea of greatness, people wanting to fit in. In the Old Testament, you've got this great king 
who has all the values of the world and the greatness of the world. His name's Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he has the ultimate job security, the ultimate popularity rating. He buys people off who would oppose him. He has military strength to squash those who would stand up against him. At the height of his power, where money is no issue, where he's got great building projects, King Nebuchadnezzar starts to have these great and intricate dreams. They, they cause him anxiety and sleepless nights. In the book of Daniel, it's picked up. Because one of the things when you have worldly greatness is that it's not stable, it's not secure. He was great in the eyes of the world, but he was filled with insecurity. He's always looking over his shoulder, who's coming up after him, who will surpass him, who would want to uh, be greater than him. And that case study found in the Old Testament of King Nebuchadnezzar, who had worldly greatness, and Daniel speaks into his context and says there's also a greatness of the kingdom of heaven, there's greatness of the kingdom of God. He's looking forward to the ministry of Jesus. That's exactly where the disciples were at in Matthew 18, verse 1. Lord, who's going to have a seat at your table? We don't want to be at the bottom. We don't want to be the lowliest. We want to be the greatest. We want to be sat right next to you. And Jesus, he always does. He responds in the most counterintuitive, the most upside down, the most inside out way. He gets a child, verse 2. And then in verse four, he says, this is the key to the kingdom. If you want to be great in my kingdom, this is inside out, this is upside down. If you want to be great, if you want to be number one, you need to be the lowliest. The key to greatness in my kingdom is humility, says Jesus. Verse four, whoever takes the lowest position, whoever becomes like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True greatness is not found in the world. True greatness in my kingdom, in my society, someone who follows my manifesto, that will be seen in someone who takes the lowliest position. The way up is the way down. The greatest is seen by the lowliest, the humblest, not the most arrogant, but the person who has got a contrite, a childlike, a humble spirit. You need to be, you need to be like a child, says Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying you need to go back to sucking your thumb. You need to be drinking milk at night. Jesus is saying, don't be childish. But Jesus is saying you need to be childlike. And there's a big difference between the two. Everyone in my kingdom has been brought low by my spirit. They've seen their spiritual poverty. They've seen their spiritual need. And that's made them lowly. That's made them limp. That's made them lean into my grace and know something of the reality of my saving power. And as we go through this story, notice in verse two through five, you see repeatedly the word child, child, children, child. I mean, Jesus is so repetitive to make his central point. And as uh, the narrative continues, the, the wording changes from verses two to five in verse six, in verse 10, in verse 14. You see the changing word, the, the phrase is included, little ones. And the temptation is to think that Jesus is just changing his vocab. Child, children is the same thing as little ones, but it's not. The original words are, are different and Jesus 
although he says child and children, verses two, verse four, verse six, all the way through those initial sentences, Jesus doesn't want to keep the scope just for a childlike faith, as central as that is. He says, no, the scope of my kingdom is greater. The society that I am bringing in is far broader. It's not just children, they're central. The attitude of a child is so key. But I want you to think about little ones. And, and that phrase, little ones, is not a synonym. It's not the same thing as saying children. Jesus is increasing the scope of what he's saying to the vulnerable. The word little ones, the phrase little ones, is another way of saying the vulnerable, the lowly, the poor, the marginalized, the ones that people look through, don't listen to, and look over the top of. Those people are central to my kingdom too. And so here's what Jesus is saying, verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. One of the signs that Jesus is the center of your life, that he's uh, controlling the CPU of your existence and thought processes, that he's reigning on the throne of your heart. One of the signs that you're part of his kingdom project is that you don't use people. You don't look down on others who have a lower income to you. You don't refuse to listen to those with a different color skin to you. This is not a modern problem. Jesus is so timely and so timelessly true. Don't look through the little ones. I value them and you should value them too. The marginalized, the lowly, the poor. Listen to them. Don't just listen to them. Love them. Love those who are different from you. They're part of my kingdom too. Those people that don't have a cultural voice. Those people that people look through and look over. They're part of my kingdom too. One of the signs that you love me, that you understand the gospel, is that you make them a priority too. Every culture needs social glue. Every culture, especially ours that's fragmenting, needs a foundation of convictions and beliefs. That means that we can listen and talk. That means we can have differences of opinion. And one of the dangers of a human heart is that it takes credence for positions of authority and power and skill sets through which we can earn a living. And we, we think because of who we are, we deserve a place in society. We deserve to be greater than we are. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know where I live? Don't you know the school I went to? In all those different ways. And because we want to take credence for our status, we think we can look down on other people. I own my own business. I earn this amount of money. Look how respectable my children are. Look how great I am. And you look down and look through and refuse to listen to the little ones, the vulnerable and the lowly, those who are poorer than you, those who speak with a different accent to you. And Jesus says, here is a foundation for a new society, for the kingdom of heaven, for my kingdom. It's listening and it's loving. It's having a childlike faith and refusing to look through and look over the little ones, the vulnerable. All that you have is a gift from me by my grace. And when you see it's a gift from grace, there's no arrogance, there's no pride, there's no haughtiness, there's humility. The skills that you have is a gift from God. And when you see that, 
that's a foundation for a new community a new society it's part of the manifesto of the sermon of the mount the manifesto from the lips of the king and jesus picks up that theme again this is the kingdom of heaven this is what it's like true greatness is found in a childlike faith true greatness is found in humility people are not there to be a stepping stone for greatness they're there to be loved and appreciated and listened to don't frustrate or make stumbling blocks for the little ones so what does it look like when you get this key concept of humility is the key to greatness jesus said that in matthew 5 he's picking it up again in matthew 18 it's the second point that's what it is it's lowliness it's humility what does it look like well you can see it it affects everything of course but it affects how you see other people and it affects how you see yourself two things when you see that greatness is seen in humility in a childlike faith it affects how you see other people and how you see yourself look at verse five let me press this image of children a bit further whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name they welcome me and then in verse 10 see that you do not look down on any one of these little ones there's a back and a forth and a two and a fro between children and little ones he brings a child verse two he he gets them as a worked example as a brilliant teacher would and he puts them on his knee and and says this you need to be like a child now now i'm going to take a few pot shots at children so if children are listening just hear me out to the end why does jesus say we need to be like children here are three things that are true of children but especially true of children in the time of jesus first of all and I've experienced at this because I was once a child and I've got four. Do you know children are tremendously ungrateful? Children are tremendously ungrateful. When you have a child, they affect your freedom. We went out this week without kids for the first time in six months. That's quite a feat and that's far too long. But children, when you have them and we love ours because they're listening in, they affect your freedom. They certainly affect your figure. They certainly affect your finances everything changes when you have kids now one of the things you can do is to buy your kid a breakfast or a donut or a bicycle as they get older and you buy a child something and they're your best friend thank you so much thank you for my pancakes thank you for the sugar content that you put on top with the squirty cream and the, the chocolate or maybe that's just us and they love you for five seconds and then they become ungrateful what have you done for me? I want more. This isn't good enough. It's not big enough. I want a better model of this. Children can be so ungrateful. But that's secondarily, children have no power. There's an ungratefulness to a child's spirit. And second point is that children have no power. They have no money. They have no social voice. They have no economic muscles. They have nothing to give you. We think about this mums know this especially for the first few weeks of their existence children just take 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 it doesn't get a lot better later on but they take 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 they don't even give you a smile till about week three or four they can be really unappreciative they can be very demanding and they have no power but here's the third aspect as jesus got this child and put them on their knee on his knee in verse two our culture is so child-centric it's all about the kids, the pester power that advertisers tap into. 
But in the time of Jesus, children were vulnerable. Children, had, they were not the center. Children were very, very weak and marginalized. They were a commodity. They were just slightly above the value of a sheep. And Jesus says, if you welcome me into your life, then one of the marks that you understand the gospel, one of the marks of true greatness in my kingdom is that when you see a child, when you see a little one, you engage with them. You listen to them. You invest in them. You don't walk into a, a Zoom conversation and think, who can I use in this conversation to, to take a step up? Who do I want to ignore as I walk into a literal room? Who do I want to look over? Who do I want to use? How can I network to the best of my ability? And oh no, my kingdom is about investing and loving and treating other people as equal. You don't look down. You don't look through. You look at the lowliest and you love them. You make time for them. You invest in them. The true mark of greatness is that you don't screen people. You don't screen your calls or your emails. You invest deeply and affectionately and seriously and in the long term with people who are in need. It's how you affect other people. Be childlike. I love children. So does Jesus. But he uses them as a worked example to say, don't be like the world. Be childlike. Be grateful. Don't look through people. And invest but then it also revolutionizes your view of yourself look at verse 6 this strong imagery could be x-rated because it's so bloody now the word jesus uses repeatedly from verse 6 is the word stumble the word stumble he says verse 6 if you cause one of these marginalized people these little ones without a voice if you cause any one of them to sin verse 10 by looking down on them. The best way to think negatively, the best way to do damage to marginalized people, people without a voice, is to look down on them, says Jesus. To not give them a voice, to keep the status quo. That's the best way for you to keep society fraying, is to not invest, to not listen, to not love, and to look down on other people to keep the class structure, to keep uh, inherent racism, whatever that looks like in our Epsom context. The best way to do that is just to look down on people. You're nothing to me. You're different from me. You're lower than me. You earn less than me. Your car is worse than me. Your children are more uh, worse behaved than mine. Jesus is saying, if you see anything in your life that causes you to stumble, to sin, this incredible imagery, verse 9, if you see anything in your heart or mind, any, any bitterness in your spirit that causes you to look down on other people, you need to take drastic action. I want those lowly, those marginalized, those people without a voice, I want them to grow spiritually. And don't you get in the way of that with your attitudes, with your mean-spiritedness, with your ability to use people as stepping stones. Verse 9. If you see this by the Spirit of God, do something about it, says Jesus. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Really graphic imagery. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about repentance. He's talking about 
repentance, being sensitive to the spirit of God at work in your life through his word. And he's saying, if you see anything in your life that's causing you to move away from God's will, stop making excuses. Stop defending yourself. Stop looking the other way. Be ruthless, says Jesus. Admit that you've done wrong and repent. Repent. The mark of true greatness in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the society based on the gospel is repentance. Is admitting that you've done wrong. Of taking the hit to your character and your mask of self-sufficiency and saying, I've done wrong. I'm sorry. There's another worked example in the Bible. Do you remember Peter? Peter, one of the first apostles on whom uh, the testimony of whom the church was built the night before Jesus went to the cross. There was Peter disowning Jesus. Do you know Jesus, the little girl? No, I don't know him, never seen him. Three times Peter disowns Jesus, his master. Doesn't want to stand by him. Doesn't want to admit that he's his friend and Lord. And Peter is distraught and runs away. There's a very tender moment at the end of John's gospel, John chapter 21. It's a story about repentance. Jesus leads Peter through three repeated questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then there's a call. If you love me, then, then feed my sheep. It's the, the image of caring, of pastoring, of nurturing. Peter, do you love me? Three times of denial, three questions of restoration. It's the word feed. Peter, feed my, my sheep. Pastor my sheep. Love my sheep. It's a wonderful picture of humble repentance. Jesus, to paraphrase, is saying, Peter, your failure is the worst. You disowned me. You said you didn't know me. And if you repent, by my grace, your leadership can be the best. It's the pathway to greatness in the kingdoms through repentance, plunging your failures into the grace of King Jesus. It's the mark of greatness, not jostling to the top, but humbly seeing your need of grace and basking in the freedom that his forgiveness brings. So how do we get that finally? If that's what the, uh, the kingdom looks like, how do we get that? two things notice verse three jesus says i tell you the truth unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven notice those three words unless you change that's a, a good paraphrase of the word conversion of, of ultimate change stop going the way of the world and seeking in re humble repentance to follow king jesus Unless you become like a child, children who are ungrateful, unless you become grateful for what your father in heaven has done, you'll never be part of my kingdom. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be poor in spirit. That's the language of Matthew chapter five at the start of the Sermon of the Mount. Humility, poverty of spirit, seeing that you bring Jesus nothing and he gives you everything. That's what it means to become a Christian. I mean, here's how you can tell when you have 
not got the spirit of God working in your life, when you've not got the spirit of God working in your life, you barter. My children love haggling. I don't know where they got it from. It might be me. But they love haggling. Can I have more crisps? Can I have another strawberry? Can I have more time on the computer? And so on. And we do just the same thing with God. Jesus, here's my uh, spiritual capital. I know I'm not as bad as that person, but I'm certainly better than them. I need your help, but I don't need rescuing. I've got some spiritual money in the bank. I mean, you know how and where I've volunteered. You know the good things I've done and the money I've given and the books that I've read. I offer that to you. I just need a bit of a top up, Jesus. But one of the signs that God is deeply at work in your life is that when you stop haggling with Jesus, you stop bartering with God, you don't need a supplement, you need a saviour. You don't just need a, a bit of insurance, you need rescuing. When you see that, that means that God is humbling you and he's showing you your need for Jesus. I would be lost. I need your amazing grace. I've got nothing to offer you but my sin. Save me, please. When you start to speak like that, that's a sign that God is at work in your heart by his spirit. You need to come like a child, says Jesus, again and again in these sentences to be part of my kingdom. Be childlike, not childish, in dependency on God. But here's the second thing. Here's how you can see that you're in the kingdom. Not about yourself. You need to see who truly is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, how do you do that? Jesus has said the greatest in the kingdom is the one who, who's become the lowest. Did you notice in verse 10, Jesus kind of breaks the rules. He's making the same points, but he changes the imagery. He changes the metaphor. He goes from children and parents to sheep and shepherds. It's in verse 10. I mean, as I said earlier, sheep, they were just below the value of a child. It was, it was head nor tail which one was worth the least, really. But Jesus says, God is like a shepherd. God is like a shepherd. He will go after just one sheep that he's lost. I mean, that's just a heartwarming and a great and a love-saturated story. But there's more to it than that. Not just the loss being found. It's the value of the one that's lost. I mean, how did Jesus go after the lost sheep? It's not just a love story. It's the greatest story ever told where Jesus, the shepherd of God's people, became a sheep. He was lost, Jesus, and no one came to find him. There was no rescue for Jesus, but he died for our sins on the cross. He was abandoned. He was left and he was alone. Jesus Christ was the highest. No one was higher than him. He was supreme in the heavenly realm that the prince of heaven. And yet he became the lowest and the lost and the least. He was the greatest who became nothing. So that sheep like you and me might be found and rescued. You might look at someone and you might think I can look through them. I can not listen to them. I want to spend time with the person behind them. But one of the signs that you become a Christian and that you understand the gospel is that you start to spend increasing time and affections and thoughts on investing in the lowliest and the least. 
I'm going to love this person not for what I get from them. I'm going to love them because it's a sign that you understand the gospel, that the one who was most high became most low. Jesus, I mean, Jesus didn't look through me. Jesus gave up everything for me. And so I'm going to give up my time, my resources, my energy, my getting a step up on the ladderness to invest in the lowliness, lowliest and the least. I mean, here's the thing in a society that's fraying like ours. And society is getting heated and there's so much heartache. When people start to love one another this way, Jesus says this is the foundation of a new community where my love and rule is seen and known. It's the outworkings of a new kingdom. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And I hope you're a part of it.